Um, we're talking about preaching today, which um, is something, as I was preparing, I was like, oh, I love this lesson, it's so interesting. And then I was talking to Julie, I'm like, is anyone else going to find this interesting? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I think there actually might be lots of room for questions today. There's a lot of interesting things when we're looking first here at um, what we might call the doctrine of ordination. Uh, doctrine that actually is in, uh, challenged in a lot of uh, churches and denominations today, as whether it's really biblical. And uh, just the nature of how we do things in the OPC might also be helpful to know when we're considering this. So last time we were looking at the reading of the Word of God, now we're looking at the preaching of the Word of God, and um, I think next week we'll get into how to hear the preaching of the Word, how to be prepared to actually receive preaching properly. So the first question we're looking at is uh, 158, by whom is the Word of God to be preached? And the answer is that the Word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. So let's uh, pray as we look at our confession and catechism. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given gifts to your church, you've given gifts to your people, and you've most of all given us the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that your spirit would help us to um, understand what your word teaches in its um, in, in whole, from cover to cover, Lord, that we'd understand um, the gifts that ministers are to your people, the gift that preaching is, and how it ought to be practiced, Lord, that we'd have unity in these thoughts. And so we ask the help of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking. By whom is the Word of God to be preached? The Word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted, duly approved, and called to that office. So there's a bunch of terms in here that we need to unpack one by one. You might We think of terms such as office, gifting, approval, calling. Okay, All these under what we might put the rubric of as ordination. So it talks about this preacher, the Word of God being preached by someone who's called to that office. So we're using this word office, which is really important. And when we're saying it's an office, we're saying it's something official, right? There's actually a tie-in in those words, if you've never really thought about that. Um, official business takes place in the office. So when we're talking about an office, we're talking about an official position, an official task. And so you can think of a preacher as an authorized spokesman for God. The word preach in Greek, karukso, it means to proclaim. It's that word used of a town crier carrying out the king's message or the message from the battle to the people. It's an official proclaimer of a kingly message. And so preaching is not merely an activity that someone does. But a preacher can be an office or a role that someone actually has. Um, there's a sense in which you could say we could all cook, but not everyone is a chef. right? We can, we can see a distinction there, even though there might be similarities in task. And so preaching is not ordinary communication, but it's authorized proclamation. And because preaching here is an official task, it's, it's a calling, if you will, it requires gifting, right? You, We all sing, but you wouldn't um, encourage someone to start a band or to be a singer unless they had some gifting or skill in that area. So when we're thinking about an office, we have to ask the question of what are the sort of offices, what are the official positions God has in his church? We know in the Old Testament, there was very clearly priests that had an official role, Levites had an official role, and their tasks were very clearly outlined. So when we come to the New Testament, uh, things get a little hazier. 
And we can think of, there's offices that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. We're told in Ephesians 4 that God, when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to the church in the five offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And some argue that those last two are actually um, grammatically referring to one thing, pastor teachers or shepherd teachers. But you have these offices of apostle, prophet, and evangelist. And the Reformed tradition teaches that not all the offices were meant for all time. We divide them into what we call extraordinary offices and ordinary offices. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is, in the foundation building time of the church, God particularly had roles for men who were called apostles, who had seen the risen Jesus and had been specifically commissioned by Jesus to be his witnesses in the surrounding area, to plant churches and start them. And the apostles had particular miracle working power. They had particular authority from God to communicate the divine message. Also, prophets in those days were given particular divine revelation to declare the truths of God, um, even in a way that they might not have studied them. And so these two are foundational ministries. And they, we call them extraordinary because they were not meant for ordinary all time. Uh, thirdly, there's a transitional one called evangelists. And evangelists were most often uh, companions of the apostles in their church planting efforts. It seemed to be something of an itinerant church planting ministry. And so these three extraordinary offices working together, they were planting churches, but they never passed on their legacy to say, I'm going to put more apostles or more prophets and evangelists in these churches. They decided, and you see as the New Testament progresses, that eventually we're left with two primary offices in the church, namely the offices of elder and deacon. And these extraordinary offices in a sense, are fading away. Now, the, the language of this in the New Testament can be confusing and has led to different church traditions. So there's two words that refer to rulers in the church in the New Testament, and this, these words get translated as elders and as bishops. And a literal translation of bishop is the word overseer. So you have some church traditions like the Anglican tradition or the Catholic tradition that have bishops that are over a bunch of churches with uh, elders or pastors underneath them. But you see in the New Testament that these two terms are used interchangeably, this idea of overseers, this idea of elders. And what you can really think of it as is an office of elder with two descriptive words that talk about that office by its functions. So the elders are called overseers because their task is to oversee, and they're called shepherds or pastors. And the word pastor is just a, um, a bad transliteration of a word that would actually be translated shepherds. Okay, so pastor is, it's kind of common to English, kind of like the word bishop did. Just as overseer is a better word for bishop, shepherd is the more accurate word for pastor. Though I think we generally understand what a pastor does now. And so these words, um, we see these elders being people who oversee and people who shepherd. That seems to be their primary task. But at the same time, 
we definitely see people who are called to be preachers in the New Testament or people who are called teachers. And we think then, how does this idea of uh, an official teacher in the church versus um, an overseer, how do these things intersect? And so there's come down in Reformed churches about three different views on this. Okay, so Reformed Baptists hold what's called a two-office view. They say there are elders and deacons, and these are flat offices. There are no distinctions in types of elders. They might say there's some elders that maybe do it vocationally, some do it um, voluntarily, some might do it full-time, some might do it part-time, but they're all pastors the exact same. All of them can take the pulpit, all of them can administer the sacraments. Um, in Southern Presbyterianism, particularly in the Presbyterian Church in America, there developed a view which they would call the two-and-a-half office view, which is to say that, yes, there are just elders and deacons, but we see a distinction that there are teaching elders and ruling elders. Although there is um, a parity between them, the teaching elder might have more of a gifting uh, that the other doesn't, and therefore is going to have a particular calling to teach within that. Now, you can go one step further, and in the OPC, we hold what's called a three-office view, which sees um, more of a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders, such that we often call teaching elders ministers. Now, the question is, uh, why do we think that? And really, a lot of this it does come down to semantics at some level. Um, but we do see distinctions in Scripture, okay? So the big one is 1 Timothy 5.17, where we're told uh, that to let the elders who rule well, they're to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it seems like some elders are called to a particular labor, a work that others are not. That is, they're called to labor in preaching and teaching. And you might even think of there's a difference of in the book of Timothy, we're given qualifications for elders, but yet Timothy himself is, giving, is given different directions. Timothy is called to preach the word. T Timothy is called to teach and exhort things which the elders he's establishing aren't. So it seems that there's instructions being given to a different sort of person um, apart from merely the elders in 1 Timothy 3, someone that has a particular calling to preach and teach and exhort. And so perhaps a way to think of it is we think of this office of a minister as sort of a combination of what we might think of as the calling of a teacher and the calling of an elder to oversee. They have a calling to oversee and shepherd, but in addition to that, a particular calling to preach and to teach. And in that sense, they are carrying on the Old Testament uh, prophetic gifting, where you have three offices in the Old Testament. You have kings, priests, and prophets. And the prophets were the preachers of the Old Testament. They preached God's word to God's people. But in the New Testament, these prophets, these preachers, they get enfolded into the church life such that they are now um, elders as well as, in a sense, teachers or proclaimers of the word. And here's another way that you might be able to think of it. So if you have these ideas of um, teaching is an internal um, upbuilding task, preaching in the New Testament primarily refers to the public evangelistic proclamation of the word of God. And these functions, we can think of how they intersect 
with eldership in perhaps these ways. And this is open to correction, but I think I, I like this idea. So if you have someone who's a teacher, but not an overseer, not an elder, those are what are seminary professors. They're teachers that don't have a particular shepherding task in the local church. If you have a preacher who is not an overseer, these are what we think of as evangelists or itinerant ministers. You might think of even like a Paul Washer, someone that travels around proclaiming the gospel with a, just a call to go and to preach. But then if you have a preacher or a teacher that's also an overseer, that's a person that we call a pastor, teaching elder, a minister in the local church. And so the big difference between what we still could use the terms a teaching elder and a ruling elder is that a teaching elder or a minister has a particular gifting from God that the elder does not and has a particular calling from God to be a preacher of the gospel, a teacher of the faith that the elder has not. They have the same votes, they have the same authority in the church, but there is a calling that the preacher has that the elder doesn't. And it's a calling to be a preacher of the word of God, uh, which we'll look at soon. Um, any comments or questions so far? I know I've kind of thrown out a lot. Clear enough? Alrighty, so if someone's going to take this calling to be a preacher of the word of God, a teacher of the truths of God, uh, we recognize that this person needs to be sufficiently gifted. Now, gifting is a hard doctrine actually sometimes to understand in scripture because there's this question of, are the spiritual gifts, are they natural or supernatural? Um, and, the, and where I'm most settled right now is to say that they are generally natural abilities that are used for supernatural purposes. Generally, someone that would be, be before conversion a good teacher is probably still going to be a good teacher after conversion. But when the Holy Spirit blows upon their teaching gift that they have by virtue of creation, it becomes a gift that is supernaturally fruitful for the internal spiritual growth of God's people. It has supernatural effects. And we can consider gifts in Romans 12, 6 to 8, where we're told that having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Notice, and uh, 1 Peter 4 divides all the gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts. But notice the three speaking terms here, prophesying, teaching, and exhortation. These are three elements of the sort of communication we have in preaching. Preaching, um, giving a sermon is usually going to be part prophetic in that it has the unction of God. It has a passion. It has a proclamation element to it. It's going to be teaching in that it's explaining the word of God. And it's going to be exhortation in that it's calling God's people to apply the word in a life of holiness. And so someone that is going to be gifted in communication to the people of God, uh, this is a gift uh, that we need to have tested before someone becomes a preacher. And one of the best tests is to look for fruitfulness. 
when these gifts are used, are people blessed? Are they built up? Are they encouraged? Or are they confused or discouraged or misunderstanding? We're looking at fruitfulness, which is why it's good to give people practice opportunities, opportunities to test their giftings. And this leads into this idea of being approved, that we want to approve people that we recognize are gifted. Uh, we're saying only such as are gifted and duly approved. So 1 Timothy 3.10, when it's giving the qualifications of elders and deacons, it says, and let, this is, actually, this is about deacons, it says, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. So deacons here need to be proved before they serve, uh, which is actually one of the reasons why we have internships here at Grace Fellowship year-long internships for elders and deacons to, in a sense, prove them. But it says, let these also, which is implying that there's also um, elders first that are going to be proved and then serve in the office. Approving. And that's why in the OPC, we have education requirements for people to get licensed to preach. Think of that. We actually have a preaching license. Just like you would license someone to drive a car because you know the power of the car, we license someone to preach because we know the power of the word and want it to be handled with care that people not get bowled over, right, by the freight train of God's word. And so there's a requirement for a bachelor's degree. There's a requirement for a seminary degree. And then above that, there's internal denominational requirements to take exams in the English Bible, to take exams in Greek, to take exams in Hebrew, in church history, and exams in theology, which is on the floor of presbytery, where every pastor can ask you any question they want. And I think that's so helpful that we do that in the OPC, because I grew up in a context where there was no requirements for pastors at all. Um, I, growing up, I never had a pastor that had more than like a two-year Bible college degree, sometimes no formal education at all. Just, uh, you know, they did a one-year YWAM program, and then uh, the way it usually worked in my circles is you became a youth pastor, you know, when you were 21, then you got to upgrade to an associate pastor, like around 28, and then maybe by 35, you could be qualified to be a senior pastor. All the time, never having studied theology, never having studied how to exegete scripture properly, and it leaves the churches sickly when they don't have good teaching. And so what this is, it's a protection for Christ's church. And in our Presbyterian system, no one can be a pastor unless they've been given a stamp of approval by the entire region of pastors. All 50 pastors in this area have to say yes, we approve that this person is knowledgeable enough and gifted enough to serve. And that is a protection to you guys to know that people that come and preach are doctrinally sound and will teach sound doctrine faith faithfully. So I think this is a good thing. And um, the exact way we do it is not necessarily the right or biblical way, but we're trying to apply this principle of approval and recognizing gifting in somewhat of a structured and thoughtful way. Comments or questions? I guess, um, I think you may have kind of answered my question, but um, would you say, if this is the OPC or the Presbyterian way of doing things, not necessarily that it would be sinful or unbiblical to do it even the way you grew up with it. It's just the wisdom that you know we believe is. Um, this is the wisest way to do it. Right. I guess I, what I, what I would say is that um, 
we need to obey the principles of scripture and people might apply it differently. So, so I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. To limit, you know, the Holy Spirit working or, you know, one following the leading of, of God uh, in, in wanting to preach or teach or whatever yeah. is somewhat of a, a cheat. Right, so I guess what I'd say to that is that if we see in scripture that it says, let these be proved, so it needs to be an approval. Um, there's a requirement for us to be apt to teach. Uh, preachers need to be apt to preach. So the question is, if we need to prove that someone's gifted, and in a sense prove it, uh, the question is, different churches can do that on their own terms, right? So some might do it very informally. Be like, oh, you know, I've met with this guy for like, on my own for lunch quite a few times, and I think he's really gifted and great. He taught a Sunday school class. Um, in a different church order, you could just ordain this person. But I think as long as you're following that biblical principles of like the gifts need to be proved, they need to be proven sound and faithful, which is I think I often didn't see. There was never a proving of soundness of actual gifting. People just started doing stuff. Um, when you get a bigger organization, right, like Presbyterian churches are interconnected, so we're a big organization, you have to at some point start to formalize processes like that. Whereas I know in a lot of Reformed Baptist churches, um, the pastors personally mentor and teach the person they want to be the next minister in the church. So I think that process is great. They've personally overseen their education and their training, and they've approved them. Uh, we require the approval of the whole presbytery, the whole region, which is a different church order. But I think as long as you're following the principles of scripture, you are fine. Um, but I think the way we've codified it, if you will, yeah, is a wise application of the principle. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm really glad because uh, it's so easy to go into, I feel, the feeling idea. And... Um, that God has always designed order rather than chaos. And you can end up with everybody who does what's right in our mind because it feels right. I can go there in a heartbeat. Uh, so we do all need to be under God's authority. And if we have questions, like we all do, because we're all in different places, we need to be able to trust our pastors and leaders mm -hmm. and to know that they're not just somewhere in this world. Like mm -hmm. God knows who's saved and who's not and where we are. But I, I find it very helpful to mm. have some discernment. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I think there's a flip side that we need to be careful that we're not so rigorous that we don't actually allow people to test the gifts, right? And that's a big problem I see if you're so exclusive that you never allow anybody the ability to test gifts in any legitimate context. And so I'd say that maybe the positive of the way I grew up, um, I was encouraged to get involved in ministry from a very young age. Um, my, my pastor let me preach on a Sunday morning when I was 20 years old. And I definitely preached some erroneous things <laughs> in that sermon. Um, I was teaching a, an adult catechism class like a couple years later, and I had no oversight, no correction. They just let me do whatever I wanted. And it was great for like, you know, testing gifts. And like, I got to have a taste of ministry from a very early age. Um, but I had no correction, 
no testing that what I was going to say was actually going to be sound and biblical. And I know I actually taught stuff different than what our church officially believed, uh, but our pastor was really relaxed about it and okay about it. Um, I actually got heckled my very first sermon <laughs> by, a, by a lady in the crowd. I was basically teaching the Reformed view of um, how the church is the true Israel that inherits the promises of God. And um, she like started shouting out like about how God still has a plan for Israel to return to the land, kind of like if you're familiar with the term dispensationalism or premillennialism. She started shouting out like, but the promises to Israel will never be void. They will never be null. God still has a plan for his people. And like, this was my first sermon ever. And I was just like, um, maybe we can talk afterwards. <laughs> And then going, actually, at my first sermon text I was given, we were going through Acts, and the pastor gave me the text where King Herod dies and gets eaten by worms. So that was my first sermon text ever, and um, yeah, Pastor Joe was like, he's like, ah, JC can handle it, he'll be fine. So anyways, I remember that very clearly. Okay, so we're thinking, we saw gifting, office, now the idea of calling, those who are called. Okay, this idea of calling is important. We often talk about an internal call and an external call as being required for those who would go into the ministry. The internal call is important. It's that own internal desire of your heart. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.1 says that if anyone desires the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. There's a desiring there. And we, we, we hear words like uh, when Paul says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Or Jeremiah says that God's word is as a fire shut up in my bones. These sorts of ideas are that heart call of a preacher uh, to say, I have a compulsion of the Holy Spirit that I must be a proclaimer of the word of God, a teacher to his people. This is what I want. Paul says, um, uh, I believe in Galatians 3, he says, how I labor in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the heart of the preacher that wants to see Christ formed in people. So there's an internal call, um, but then there's also an external call. And this is important, not just anyone who says, I think I want to do this, I think I'm excited about this, should get involved. There has to be, um, if God is calling internally, he'll confirm it with the church's approval. That is, when gifts are tested, the church will say, yes, we affirm and recognize there is gifting in you. We affirm and recognize that God seems to have a particular call upon your life. And then from there, with that early encouragement, it leads to those steps of education, of licensing, until the final call, which is actually, we are going to call you to be an elder or to be a minister of the gospel at this church. And I know some have quipped, they would say, you're not actually called until, you're not actually called to the ministry until you've received a call from a church to be a pastor. You might feel a calling, but you've actually not been called until you've actually been called literally to be a pastor of a church. That's when that call is in a sense completed. And now some ministers, they will testify that sometimes one of these calls is stronger than the other. Some people have a really strong sense of internal call and the church is maybe a bit hesitant at first. Like we're not 
sure, but keep going ahead. And over time, the person's giftings grow. I know John Piper says he was a terrible public speaker at first, so incredibly nervous, but he grew and developed. And the church might come along and say, wow, we've really seen you grow. Your preaching gift has come along. We do affirm you, right? So sometimes the internal leads the external, but very often, um, and this is actually, I think more, uh, this would be Pastor Mike's testimony, this idea of, other people first coming and saying, hey, we see gifting in you. We see a, a hunger and a love for the Lord. We think you, like, have you ever considered the ministry? Would you look into that? And that thought of, I don't know, like, I don't know if I trust myself that way. I don't know if I'm gifted enough. Um, I do love the Lord and his word, but I'm not sure if that's my call. And then sort of the church leads the charge and the person is exploring. And I talked to a lot of guys in seminary that were wrestling, even in fourth year with, am I actually called to be a pastor? And that can be a real hard burden to bear. But sometimes it is actually just that church external call that really can give that sense of confidence then of who, yes, if God is, if God's people are affirming this, this must be right. Maybe I can overcome my insecurities and hesitancies. Calling. Any questions on calling? Um, this is all talking about calling to the pastorate. Call it, yeah, call it, I, I, the context is to be a preacher, really. Yeah, so the same wouldn't apply for eldership in general. I would say yes, but different, right? The internal call is not going to be an internal call to be a preacher of the gospel. It's that internal call to be a shepherd of the flock, right? It's, so that's gonna, it's going to rise from a love for people, but it's being applied with different giftings and a, and a different, yeah, function, if you will. Um, and we, we, like the processes are different, right? We, we don't have such strict standards for elders as far as their education and their licensing because um, like according to James 3, we don't consider them teachers in the church, right? Like James says, teachers of the word will be judged with harsher strictness. And even though elders need to be able to teach, First Timothy says, they're not actually teachers, capital T in the church. So that's partly why we have higher um in a sense, rigorous education requirements for teachers. But still, elders, I think, need to feel that internal call, for sure, and they do need to be approved by the church. And when we've gathered elders here, it's you know talking to people saying, wow, this person stands out to me as an example of godliness, someone servant-hearted and wise. You know, So it, is, it does both apply to ruling elders, I'd say. Okay, so this all kind of sums up in the doctrine of ordination. Now, ordination is not really a word that's in the Bible. If we're thinking about this, in, um, ordination is like really defined as um, how does someone get given like a charge to be a minister of the gospel? But biblically, what we're talking about is what we might call the doctrine of sending. This idea of sentness is really important in the New Testament. So even going back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 14, 15 Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. So there's this harsh condemnation on prophets who are taking it upon themselves to be those who proclaim the word of God to the people of God. But God says, I didn't send them. They're going in their own name. They're going in their own desires. God has not called them. In Romans 10:15, this is a preeminent text. It says, how shall they preach? 
right? It goes, um, it goes in that order of how shall they believe without hearing, how, they'll, how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach except they be sent. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. He's saying there's a reason that preachers need to be sent. That, that is referring back to a church body, uh, some group of uh, people sending them. That is giving an official blessing, an official sending. And we see this happen in the book of Acts. In Acts 13.2, we see, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you see, there, God calls people to a particular work. And if we're thinking of this work, the work of the ministry, these people ought to be set apart. There's a setting apart that happens, symbolized by the laying on of hands, and then ascending. It might just be ascending within the local church, or here it was ascending in a missionary context. And we think of this as the doctrine of ordination, that someone is officially recognized and set apart to, as 1 Timothy 5.17 said, labor in preaching and teaching. They're set apart to this task like the priests and prophets were set apart of old with the anointing of oil, but now it's the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands is not required for ordination, but it seems to be um, a highly wise symbolic act that was so used in the New Testament. So now an important thing with ordination, um, we learn in Hebrews 5.4, this is talking about how Jesus was ordained to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this happened at his baptism when the voice came from heaven saying, you're my son and you I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended, symbolizing the anointing. And that's when Jesus started his public ministry. So Jesus in the office of a priest, we're told that no man takes this honor for himself, but he that's called of God as was Aaron. And so the, the context, it's saying that Jesus didn't even take this honor to himself to ordain himself. Jesus didn't decide at 20, I'm ready to go minister the gospel. He waited until the Father approved him, anointed him, and sent him out to minister. And so if even Jesus um, waited till the proper recognition happened before starting his ministry, how much more should we be careful to never take this honor to ourselves? And so there's a grave danger in self-ordination. And this has been basically America's doctrine from the start. This came in popularly with the Methodists that they said, the gospel needs to go forth so badly, anyone who wants to preach the gospel can go preach the gospel. And they sent their circuit riders west. Any guy, uneducated, whatever, that said, I want to be a pastor, they said, go do it. And what happened is the Presbyterians got stuck in the East because they couldn't raise up ministers in the seminaries quick enough to deal with the burgeoning Western population. And uh, America got taken over by Methodism at that point. But if you've known people like I have that basically are unhappy in a church, um, they say, oh, you know, I want our church to be more like John MacArthur's church. And they leave and start their own church and say, I'm the pastor. They ordain themselves to a work of ministry. And I don't know in your experience, but in my experience, these people are usually authoritarian. They're usually tyrannical in their churches, and they exercise discipline harshly, and they allow no one to stand up against them because they've made themselves the pope of their own church. They've called themselves to the ministry, ordained themselves to the ministry, 
when they've never been tested and approved by a congregation. They were never even voted in by the congregation because they started their own church on their own terms. Uh, very, very dangerous. Um, no man takes this honor for himself. And so the sending ordination, um, this approval, it's symbolized by the laying on of hands. Uh, we see this, 1 Timothy 4.14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Uh, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 5.22, he warns them, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, but keep thyself pure. Warning against too quickly bringing people into places of authority and responsibility in the church. If you remember 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he not be a novice that he not be young in the faith. Um, I, I know someone in my old context who was recently converted, very zealous, and got put in the eldership, and he could not handle the difficulties of, in a sense, the politics of eldership. And he got so disillusioned so quickly, um, it really broke him down, and he, he left and had a lot of troubles for a while because of that. He wasn't mature enough in his faith to handle the difficulties of oversight in the church body. So I was hoping we'd get through the next question, but we are definitely um, going to leave it there. But we do have a few minutes uh, for questions or comments uh, before we head out. So any, anyone have anything? So it seems like, um, <clears throat> well, deacons are as important as elders, but then preachers um, are a little bit more important. Or like held held to a higher standard, or like double honor, as it says, mm -hmm. and judged with greater strictness. Yep. But um, I guess in some traditions, elders kind of have more, uh, maybe more authority, or um, a higher standing than deacons. Or or it's almost like deacons are like a stepping stone to eldership. But yeah. The, the Bible says that they're pretty equivalent. I guess like all the authorities of the elders, right? Yeah. So there's there are different views on that. Um, I guess I I would I would quibble with the language of importance in general, right? Like. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 says, like, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, right? We are all essential, right? Like, the smallest lug nut in the tire is really important, even though it seems small or seems to have less responsibility. So I'd say there's different responsibility levels, and there's a different gravity, but I, I, I wouldn't use ever the language of importance. Uh, but as far as authority in the church... Um, there, there's a debate over whether deacons are under the authority of the elders or an equal authority to the elders. Um, I think we kind of officially would say that deacons are under the authority of the elders. Um, but we, at least at Grace Health, we really try to emphasize that they are side-by-side -side different, different ministries that are not to really, the elders aren't to lord it over the deacons, but to trust them and give them a lot of freedom. Um, some churches even question whether we need deacons in an age of like vast social services that do most of the functions that the diaconate would. But um, I was just reading in Herman Boving's Dogmatics this week. He was talking about, he said, you know, even if you have a state with really good social services, he says, the church can't neglect the office of the diaconate and our calling to care for our poor, our sick, and our midst and to never forget that. But I think you're right in the sense that often we've manipulated and twisted the offices to the point where, um, and I was actually talking to Julie about this this week, that 
very often deacons end up being, we think of them as just like trades workers, and they just deal with money and building and stuff. Uh, whereas the biblical deacon is a minister of mercy who is meant to care for the poor and the sick. So rather than, you know, if we think of people's giftings and their vocations as similar, rather than thinking that the natural fits for deacons would be, you know, um, tradesmen and accountants, the natural fit, I think, would really be, you know, nurses and social workers, right? It's, um, but we've really lost that ministry context. Uh, we are intentional here to try to free up our deacons to do mercy ministry, which is why we have um, trustees that particularly care for budgets, building, and grounds. And that's because we've seen that error of deacons getting swamped with budgeting stuff when we want them to do mercy. Similarly, in a lot of churches, elders function just like the board of a charitable organization. They often end up being yes-men for the pastor who really has all the control. And that's why we're intentional here to make sure that the elders are shepherds and shepherding. So we actually have two elders meetings here a month. One of them is to deal with kind of the business and the things you have to figure out in the church. But we are intentional to leave one of the meetings a month only to prayer and shepherding. So even this last Tuesday when we got together, um, and I joined them even though I'm not an elder, um, all, we, we prayed for all of the young adults in our church by name, shared everything we knew about what they were going through, asked them for prayer requests, and spent the whole time basically praying for the young adults in our church. And I just think that's a, such a good, that is very rare in churches that um, elders actually shepherd and love the flock like they do here. So I think you guys are very blessed. And the intentional care in the districts I think is all um, really wise. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd say about that. And look at that, we're out of time. Good question, Andrew. Thanks for filling us up to the end. Um, yeah, let, let, let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, the shepherd of our souls, and the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Um, would we love him and honor him more, see him even in our worship now? But Lord, help us to respect um, our shepherds, the ones you've placed over us, and would we honor them particularly by heeding your word and your word as it's preached, that we would sit under it faithfully and so be a joy uh, to our elders and our pastors here by being doers of the word and not hearers only. Would we readily respond to their discipline, their exhortations and encouragement, um, that we would be a people well cared for, but also thankful, blessing our elders, praying for the elders and the deacons, Lord. And would you just continue to bless us and protect us, keep us from tyranny and authoritarianism, keep us from rebellion and disrespect, that we would be a growing healthy body, all for Jesus' glory, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good stuff. Important stuff. Sometimes overlooked stuff. I know, right?